I've been assigned a text from Isaiah 59, so I'd invite you to please turn to that chapter in the Scripture, and we'll just begin to read. I'll do no further introduction than that. And as we read through it, I'll just stop at various points and, and, uh, and make some comments. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, <clears throat> or His ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Now, I was going to begin by reading the entire text, even as, as our brother Don did, but um, I thought I would want to stop here for a moment because depending on your perspective, I think it's possible that we might read these two verses and not get beyond them and get stuck here. It was the last year about this time I was uh, teaching the book of Galatians, a place called Bibelschule Bracke. It's in northern Germany. And um, we were in the latter half of the second chapter of Galatians, and, and uh, a conversation had started about justification by works versus justification by law. And as we were talking about this, I finally stopped the class because I could see where it was going. And I said, I'd like you to tell me whether or not you actually believe that God punishes Christians for their sins. Now, I don't know if you know, but most Bible college students at a point like this smell there's trouble in the air. And uh, so they all look down and they say, why should I be offered up as a burnt offering on the altar? I will say nothing at this point in time. And, uh, but as Soren Kierkegaard once said, in every generation, there are a few called to make a sacrifice. And sure enough, there was a young man at the back of the class who just his hand shot up, and he said, uh, yes, God sometimes punishes Christians for their sins. It's a wonderful moment. Uh, everyone looked at him thinking, I can't believe what he just did. And I walked because he was right in the back. And, uh, you know, as a Canadian, they don't really understand Canadian culture, so I kind of acted like an American for a moment, and I, and I went to his desk and slapped my hand down on as hard as I could, and I said, stand up and tell this class why Christ died. If he did not die to pave the punishment for all of your sins, if there is still things left undone, explain to us what was left undone in the cross. Well, everyone else in the class looked so grateful at that moment because they had not been that person. Um, but I, I am left wondering whether or not he's alone in that assessment. How often a Christian who has become ill will wonder to themselves, I wonder whether God is punishing me. Of all people, my own father, when he was lying dying, and he was lingering. He wanted so desperately to go across the, the great divide and be in the presence of his Savior. He said to me, I think in a moment of weakness, perhaps I linger this long because I'm being punished. And I took his hands and I said, Dad. He said, I know. And then he smiled. But sometimes we can become like Job's miserable comforters. How many of you know that? I mean, have you been at the bedside of a saint and others have told them, it is because of sin that you're suffering as you are. And how easily that is done. Um, you know, Christ either bled and died for our sins, and He accomplished all that needed to be accomplished on the cross so that it is done with, and there's nothing left to do, or the cross means nothing at all. Now, I do know that we need to maybe supplement that with a passage like in Hebrews chapter 13, or sorry, chapter 12, verses 3 to 11. And you'll remember in chapters 12, 3 to 11, uh, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that sometimes believers will go through hardship because God is discipling or disciplining us that we might be uh, trained or uh, disciplined, that our sufferings help that we would share in His glory so that we never view hardship as random in the life of any believer, do we? God is always there at each moment and every insignificant, at least what would seem to us, an insignificant moment. God is meticulously sovereign and allows us to go through difficult times so that our holiness might be shaped, but we see that as very different than suffering for our sins. Also, as Peter reminded us in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he said, we are grieved by trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So, in other words, this is not punishment. But why do I mention this? Because let's go back to Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. 
Israel has sinned and um, as uh, Don did so wonderfully for us in the uh, two chapters that he dealt with. Israel failed to loose the bonds of the oppressed, failed to share their bread with the hungry, failed to honor the Sabbath, replaced Sabbath rest and worship with selfish pleasure and idolatry. And now with sins left unconfessed and unrepented of, have in the moment of trial, when the nation itself has come to some point in which there is a crisis moment, have turned to God in the moment of their crisis and have called upon the Lord and asked the Lord, help us at this moment. The only answer that comes from heaven is silence. God separates himself from his people, turns his face, closes his ears, and will not deliver them. We are told your sins have created a barrier between you and your God so that he will not hear you. And that brings me back to my question. How shall we make application of a passage like this? It's very difficult for me to simply read the rest of the text without stopping at this moment and saying, how am I to understand now as I read this today? Because it will not do to simply apply this to the context of Israel in which it was written and ought to ask ourselves what God might be saying. Shall I apply this to the culture in which we live, to the nation that we live? And by the way, so much of the book of Isaiah can be applied to the culture in which we do live. See, I don't know how you feel, but I am overwhelmingly ashamed to live in a country in which Canada and only two nations in the world are actually united in this one thing. Canada, North Korea, and China are the only three nations in the world that have absolutely no abortion law whatsoever. We are only one of three. In Canada, 300 unborn children are aborted every day. It's like a large jetliner crashing every day, day in and day out, day after day without cease, and it never actually makes the newspaper. There's silence. We've turned our faces so that we do not see. And as we are ending a long election campaign, not one mention of this horrifying part of Canadian life is so much as mentioned. And I say to myself, will these sins continue to compound? What would happen when our nation reaches a moment of crisis and we come to that place where we need to cry out to God for help? I think Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 does indeed apply to a nation such as ours. And so I think since we are praying for revival, we must pray that there would be in this nation a time in which the men and women of this country would again cry out to the Lord that there really would be a day that it would be impossible to live in this country without having to decide what to do with Jesus because as it presently is, a whole generation will now live and die and never be confronted with the gospel claims. How can we possibly be silent of that? Well, we might say, well, then let's just apply Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 to that situation and be done with it and move forward and make application and feel quite smug by the time we're done, should I say. But as a matter of fact, we might ask ourselves, well, perhaps we could also apply this to pseudo-Christians, but since what I've just said about believers and the cross of Christ, surely God will always answer our prayers. But there are those of us who might say, well, perhaps when we leave sins unrepented of, when we have not utterly renunciated our sins, perhaps then when we have allowed besetting sins. You know what besetting sins are? Those are those habitual patterns that that keep coming up in our lives, that we come before the Lord and we repent of them and then we do them again. And I'm speaking about things like recurrent anger in a life, recurrent lust, maybe a struggle with pornography that someone goes through for a number of years. Uh, envy, failure to trust God in crisis, perhaps in those situations, would we say that God does not answer? How indeed are we to understand these words as believers today? See, it's very difficult for me to continue to read, and we will continue to read, but we must ask that question. And so let me begin by making a couple of statements that I'm hoping may challenge or reaffirm our theology Isaiah 59 does indeed challenge the theology of the believer, and let me put it again in New Testament terminology. You cannot claim justification by faith if by that we do not mean a resolute turning from sin and a wholehearted throwing of ourselves on the mercy of God, because that is a part of what faith is. 
I have turned from myself and my confidence that I have had in every other earthly possession or earthly lifestyle pattern that I have. And I have turned now from that and thrown myself entirely on the mercy of Christ. See, wherever there has not been heartfelt repentance, indeed, I would not think that we have genuine conversion. Now, I don't often quote Bonhoeffer because I recognize the theological problems that are sometimes there, but Bonhoeffer was right when he said to the German people at the beginning of the Nazi regime, when he said to them who were thoroughly Lutheran, who had understood the doctrine of justification quite well, when he said that you cannot have justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. You cannot have cheap grace in which we paper over sin and announce forgiveness where none has been offered. And I think that needs to be said today again. Furthermore, I am not arguing for sinless perfection here. For in the cross we have a promise and a very strong one. It's found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you and I should constantly claim that as we go to the Lord on a daily basis and confess our sins before Him. I am also not arguing here today that we need to defeat all habitual patterns in our lives. Yes, we must wage war on them. Yes, we must, according to the Scripture, put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's called The older theologians call this the, the mortification of the flesh. But I am cognizant. In fact, I am overwhelmed the older that I get with the sin that is still alive in me that I must yet, by the Spirit of God, put to death, that I must mortify. But in that, I remind myself constantly of the teaching that Jesus gave in Matthew 18, verse 22. And you'll remember... The disciples came to him and said, How often should we forgive our brother when he sins against us? And you recall that Jesus, you know, they said seven times, and Jesus said 70 times seven, meaning, of course, that there is no end to the forgiveness that we offer. And if that's what Christ has said we must do to our brother, then can we not assume also that our Heavenly Father does the same when His children come to Him and renounce their sins? perhaps even sins that they have committed before and have told the Lord they would not do again and have not yet learned the secret of walking by the Spirit. Can we not assume that our Lord is merciful and gracious, that when we come to Him in earnest confession, that He hears our prayer and answers? I am convinced that the mark of the elect is not that they never fall, it is that they never become comfortable in lying down in our sins. If we have fallen into sin, the mark of a believer is we will stand again. And we will fight for holiness with all that we have. But if we will not, and here's what I need to say before we go further in this text. But if we will not, as Hebrews reminds us, that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, and here I will argue for that in fact that we are given the assurance in Scripture that once we have saved, the mark of the elect is that they persevere in the faith. Now, we go a long time in the book of Hebrews, but I must say this. There is a mark of an individual who will not mortify the sin within, will not put it to death, will not fight with it. And I will say that they have never known Christ. So let me relate all this back to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, if I am to understand this, must be applied somewhere. Look again at verse 2. Your iniquities, it says, have made a separation. Now the force of the grammatical form here is continuous. The idea here is that Israel has for a long time been heaping up a barrier between themselves and God. And they have lived in deliberate disobedience to His law. They have taken no stance of humility. They have not turned from their evil with remorse or with repentance, and they have allowed the sin to remain and justified themselves in their sin. And now has come the day of trouble, and God does not hear them. And that means, of course, that sin which we will not renounce is indeed hateful to God, and we must at all times expose ourselves to that which grows within. It causes a barrier between God and ourselves. But again, I, I need to say this because whenever one speaks, and those of you who speak regularly know this to be the case, you know that there are so many different people that one speaks to. There's the person who doesn't struggle with conscience issues as much as others. There are some of us that are 
oversensitive here and will say, perhaps I've left one sin unconfessed, and perhaps Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 applies to me also, and therefore I can't go to God, for He will not hear me. I am reminded of Hebrews 4.16, which teaches us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. For those who adopt a stance of humility, who come before the Lord and seek grace, Isaiah and the rest of the gospel promises us that there is grace indeed found before the throne. But I will argue for costly grace, that we cannot flee to the throne of God if we will not flee Sodom. And that, I think, is the message that the evangelical church must hear. The great error of the free grace folks is that we have argued, or they have argued, that conversion can be had without a renouncing of our own sin, and that is mockery to Scripture. I'm reminded of 2 Peter 1, verse 10. Brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Be diligent and test yourself in this. I think the greatest error in the evangelical movement that we have today is to reduce the gospel to a series of propositional statements that we but assent to them, we will be well. And I fear that we have filled our churches with a great company of people who have been baptized but have never been rightly converted. And they don't understand how it can be, therefore, because they have told they've been been converted. And they come to God in a time of need and wonder why it is that God does not answer. And those of us who want to adopt a stance of humility must remind ourselves that the testing of our faith or that being diligent to make our calling and election sure is indeed this, that we will at all times when there is a call for repentance that we would be the first at the altar, that we will say, I also, Lord God, need to kneel here that I'm convinced of. So let's read again, Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Now that's a description of what sins have wrought, and then comes what Isaiah puts a description or a detailed description, what you have now in verses 3 all the way to verses 8, will be a detailed description of some of the sins that were not renounced, that were not repented of. So let's continue to read in verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders' eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood, Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity and desolation and destruction are in their highways. And the way of peace they did not know and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked and no one who treads on them knows peace. Now I notice that we begin with a general sense that there is a problem in Israel and that God has hidden His face. The day of crisis has come. And the leaders of Israel, the people of Israel who have not renounced their sins, have gone and heaven is not answered. And they're asking, how far away is God? Perhaps He's so far away from us that He's not listening. Perhaps He's involved in other things. They have a lesser view of God because of their own sin. And then Isaiah gives us particulars. He mentions, as you've seen already, murder and violence, lying and slander. And then you'll notice also in verse 4 where he adds no one enters suit justly. So it must mean that the murder and the violence are actually done in the law courts themselves. Those of you who know your Bible well will remember that you know, maybe a hundred years before Isaiah's time, 
in the time of Ahab. You know, you have this incredible story of, of, um, of uh, Jezebel in Israel and a man by the name of Naboth who has a vineyard. And, and Ahab knows that he can use the law of the land to murder Naboth. And I think what Ahab is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what I think what Isaiah is saying to us here is very simple. The law courts in Israel have been turned to make a mockery of justice. The poor never receive their just desserts in a court of law. It is a place of oppression. So the place where they should have found relief from the oppressor is the greatest oppressor of all. And then we go beyond that and look at verse 7 to 8. And when you heard them read, you might have said to yourself, they sound familiar to me, because in fact they are. Paul quotes them in Romans 3, 15 to 17. And there in Romans 3, Paul uses these very words of Isaiah to make his case that all humanity is indicted in this way. That in some fashion, all of us are those individuals who, verse 7, whose feet run to evil and are swift to shed innocent blood. Paul wants us to read Isaiah by not simply relegating it to Israel, but to find ourselves universally condemned in this description. So what we have then in verses 3 all the way to verse 8 is a specific injunction against Israel itself. But then as we continue to read verses 9 to 11, I'll read it in just a moment. As we continue to read, we read from a specific speaking of these are the sins of Israel to an indictment now. This is the consequence of what's happening. Now, you might say, well, aren't verses 1 to 2 already the consequence of individual sins? God's not going to hear you in the day of your trouble. Well, yes. But what happens in verses 9 to 11, if you watch it very closely, is that the consequences of sin are felt in the internal spiritual condition of the person who will not renounce their sin. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind, we grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as, the, as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears, we moan and moan like doves. We, d we hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Now in that grouping of verses here, please notice that there is what some you know, Bible teachers will call an inclusio. And so you will have sometimes, if you can imagine, a bunch of books on a shelf, and you have, you know, um, you have kind of weights that stand and each holding them all up. And that's kind of how this functions. So at the beginning, you have a statement that's made. It's repeated at the end. And everything in the middle is supposed to relate to those end pieces. So look again at verse 9. Or sorry, verse, uh, yes, verse, verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us. You see that? Now look at verse 11, the latter half of verse 11. We hope for justice, but there is none. So justice is far from us, but not only is it far from us, says Isaiah, we hope for it. And isn't that fascinating? Because individuals who live in unrighteousness, who will not repent, who will not bend the knee to God's righteous demands, and who will not submit to Him, don't humble their spirit, still hope for righteousness. I've got to stop there and think about that. But I think that's the universal condition of the human race, not only of us. See, the reality is we may tolerate sin in our own lives, but we still hope for a culture and a society and for relationships that are governed with righteousness. And then notice the second half of verse uh, 9. I mean, there's, a, there's these couplets here. We, uh, Therefore, justice is far from us, see verse 9 again, and righteousness does not overtake us. Now, if you look down again to verse 12, um, it says, I'm sorry, at verse 11, we hope for justice, there was none, for salvation. Now, notice the word righteousness is turned to salvation, but it is far from us. So the righteousness of a righteous society would deliver us in the day of evil, but it's not happening. And in consequence of longing for justice but not finding it, Isaiah now describes what actually life looks like in Israel. We hope for light. Notice again, latter half of verse 9. There's only darkness. 
for brightness. We walk in a gloom. We're groping for the wall. Not only does Isaiah say, are we blind? But we are like those who don't even have eyes. So that is, there is no possibility of seeing whatsoever. And so the idea behind all of this is that they are incapable of seeing. Remember and, uh, when Isaiah was called into ministry. Isaiah 6 verse 10. God tells Isaiah what kind of ministry he used to have. And let me read it to you. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy. Blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and turn and be healed. Keep on preaching the righteousness of God and the need to humble oneself in God's presence and to look to Him for mercy. Continue to preach this over and over again until they've heard it so often that in not responding... They are like men who have no eyes, who grope for the righteous culture that they so long for, but they will never find it. And in consequence of not finding it, notice what it says in verse 11. We growl like bears. We moan and moan. You can see this, this inner, this inner the sounds that are being made now. The, 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 the painful toil of a culture that is going downhill has left individuals with a groaning inside of them and finding no relief whatsoever. And that brings us back to the first two verses. Isn't in this moaning to say, Oh God, heal our land. And God says, I've turned my face from your cries and I will not heal. See, there is something about the doctrine of human sin, the bondage of the will. We seek and seek and seek and say, Oh Lord God, I want my life to be different than what it is. And God does not respond. And we can't ourselves grope our way to the light. See, the doctrine of, of human sin, that indeed that we, are not, we don't have the power to control our own sin life. You know, when a person first sins, they, they, they imagine to themselves that once I have sinned, that I will gain mastery of it and I will lay it aside whenever I wish only to recognize that sin itself gains dominion and we groan underneath its, its, its hard taskmastership so that we can never recover. And God is hiding His face. Now again, we do well to stop and consider the nature of the gospel that is sometimes being presented. I'm going to give you a little example. A number of years ago, I was invited to a businessman's luncheon where a key businessman was giving his testimony, a man that I had actually known for a number of years, very wealthy, very successful, and a man who had, I know, walked away from the faith for a period of time, however you understand that. I'll never forget him telling a story. He said he was sitting in a hot tub in Palm Springs. He said, I felt like it was time for me to correct my ways. And he said, I've made a hundred and thousands and thousands of business deals. And sitting there in that hot tub, he says, I reached out my hand like this to God, and I simply said, let's make a deal today. And he said, I'm going to tell you, all my sins are forgiven. And I remember listening to that for some time. And I remember thinking about it. Because I looked around the room, and most of the people in that room had heard of the reputation of this man. They had heard of him walking away from his wife and his adulterous affairs. They've heard of his bad business practice. In fact, they'd even heard that in his local church, and it, because it had made the news, he was involved in a scandal that was being looked into by the tax department because of some of the dealings that he had done. But in all of the testimony, he did not mention renouncing the sins that had so claimed his spirit. Indeed, he presented himself as someone who was casually in control of his life, who could at any moment make the deal with God that he wanted and did make it at just the right moment. See, the great horror of sin is that sin will capture us in a way that we had not intended. So we continue to read verse 12 and on. Verse 12 reads, We all growl like... I'm sorry, I was reading verse 11. Let's go to verse 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Now notice in these verses now, Isaiah wants to go to the fact that not only are these sins existing, not only do they leave us hopelessly unable to respond to God, but now he wants to say that there is a, 
a cumulative effect of our sin. It just keeps going higher and higher all the time. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins now testify against us. Our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing, defying the Lord, turning back from following God, speaking oppression and revolt. Again, details, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. See, it's that last line that I just need to stop and just contemplate for a moment. There's something about an evil culture that makes righteousness increasingly difficult. If you will stand for righteousness in an increasingly pagan culture, you will suffer. And Isaiah, in fact, is saying those very things. But we've not yet come to the gospel. We've come to condemnation after condemnation. But I'm going to say this, that we can't actually ever get to the gospel until we see the blackness of human sin, until sin is portrayed in such a fashion that leaves us helpless under its dominion. There is no good, good news in the gospel. I remember years and years ago, Kathy and I had gone, my wife and I had gone on vacation to one of these, you know, underground tunnels where they take you, you know, so these huge caverns, and uh, they turn the lights off, and there's no external light at all. If you want pure blackness, it's there. And, and I'll remember, because it was dark like that, and I remember putting my hand like this, and I was unable to even see the slightest shadow or the movement of my hand. It's really quite an experience if you've never had an experience like that. And then as we remained dark for quite some time, our guide lit a single match in that place. And I can't tell you what an incredible sight that was. That one little match pierced through the darkness in a way that I can't possibly describe until you experience it. And I would think that unless we tell the gospel story in such a way that says sin is so corrosive, it lives within us, it deceives us, it captures our will and holds it in bondage, and even when we wish to seek God, we can't find Him, and when we think we should make a deal with Him and hold out our hand and shake His hand, He turns His face from us because of our iniquities until we painted that blackly. There is no room for the gospel. The cross makes no sense at all. And that's why when we come to the middle of verse 15, there is suddenly this change in the whole tenor of this chapter. It's striking. Look at verse 15b. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Now, we stop there. The Lord saw it. I love what Job calls God. He calls him, you watcher of men. He complains to God, why won't you take your eyes off me even for a moment? You remember that? So long that I might even swallow my spit, he says. God watches him constantly, and he finds his ceaseless gaze uncomfortable. Now, I know when you read Psalm 139, David says, where shall I flee from your presence if I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there? You remember that. I mean, David finds delight in the constant gaze of God. But when sin is undealt with, the constant God of God is a, this constant gaze of God is a searching gaze that simply will not let go. He watches everything. I began with the story of abortion in Canada. And God watches the death of every single child that is sacrificed on the altar of Canadian convenience 300 times a day. God takes note of every single child. And he takes note also when we come before his altar seeking only advantages and will not come with a humble heart, he notes it all. That's what's being told us here. Then we come to verse 16. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. I stop here again because this passage, 16a, he saw that there was no one and wondered that there was no one to intercede. As, it, it, it reminds me of the book of Revelation. Remember in the fourth chapter. And there's a call that goes out. Who is worthy to break the seals? I'm sorry, chapter 5. Who is worthy to break the seals? And, and no one was found who was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll until John the Revelator is told, stop weeping. 
The Lamb of God is worthy. And we ought to read it in the same way. It's not that God is wondering and saying to himself, man, I thought somebody would stand up as a strong champion and play the prophetic role and lead people's hearts back to righteousness. It's as if, however, using very anthropomorphic language, God's eyes are gazing and recognizing there is no strong champion among the human race that can lead the human heart back to God. That voice does not exist. All that was given to Isaiah was to speak to the people and call them to repentance, to do it so long until their hearts were completely hardened over. God sees that's the case. And then we come the latter half of verse 16, and you might say, ah, here's the gospel. His own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. Now, I would have thought at this moment, if I were writing this, I'd, I'd want to say to Isaiah at this moment, could you stop for a moment, because I'd like you to write, then his own arm brought us salvation, because that's what I'm waiting for. I want us to be saved at this moment. I want to be told about the marvelous suffering servant who gives his life so that my sins are paid for. I like to hear about the spirit who comes to soften the heart, to do something that I cannot do on my own. But I notice that's not what the passage says yet. His arm brought him salvation. Now, it's again, it's, you know, it's Hebrew poetry. And so you have the kind of poetry where the second line reinforces what's said in the first line. So his own arm brought him salvation. Another way of saying that is his righteousness upheld him. See, when everything else is in decay, when all the foundations are being destroyed, God will not be destroyed alongside of it. The first thing that God will do is defend his righteous honor. He will defend his glory. In fact, if you go ahead of me for just a moment and you go all the way to verse 19, they will fear the name of the Lord from east to the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. So we're going to get to that in a moment, but this is what it's all about. God is saying at this juncture, when all the, when all the, the, the people of Israel are sinning against me and will not bend the knee and will not submit to my law, and I've turned my back from them. The first action that I have is to defend the glory and the greatness of my name. And then in order to illustrate that, we come to verse 17 and 18. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. God is now arming himself for war. He will do battle for the sake of his own great name. He will claim this earth as his own. He put on the helmet of salvation on his head. And you say, oh, I know what this sounds like. This sounds very much like Ephesians 6, doesn't it? You know, our, our warfare against the prince of darkness, to put on the full armor of God. But in fact, in the context here, the armor is the armor of an incensed and angry God who comes to visit those who will not repent. Though even though they long for change, they can't do it. He arms himself. Look at verse half of, second half, verse 17. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapping himself in a zeal, in zeal as a cloak, according to their deeds, verse 18, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, so that coastlands we will render repayment. Nothing will escape the hand of God. Now there's a couple of things we could think about. We could think about the great day of wrath that is indeed coming upon the whole earth. I notice, however, that John in 1 John, talks about many antichrists have come into the world and there have been moments of wrath. So I would look at the reading through the New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Testament, and I would read the story of the destruction of Jerusalem and with all that happened and read the lamentations that follow from Jeremiah, read that entire account and says, this is what is happening or this is a lesson book of what will happen to any people group or any individual who will not bend the knee to God. We will be treated precisely like that. See, when Don said today as he was, as he was mentioning uh, the, the nature of wrath, do we know as a matter of fact that God, the best days for Canada are ahead. We don't know that. There will either be a rending of the heart and a turning to God, or God will visit this nation in wrath. 
Now, we don't know when he does that. Sometimes, as it has been said, that the justice of God seems to move so very slowly, and yet it grinds so exceedingly fine. But God will come in wrath, and in the end of the day, God puts, clothes himself with the weapons of war and says, I will defend the glory of my honor, and I will come and wage war. See, when we talk about salvation, I would always want to say this. The first thing that we are saved from is not our sin or the mess that we've made or the relationships that have been broken or the things, the structures that we have created that no longer work the way that we should. That's not the first story of salvation. The first story of our salvation is not even that we have been saved from our great enemy, Satan. The great story of our salvation always begins this way. I have been saved from the wrath of God because God became my enemy through my sin. And he clothed himself with weapons of vengeance and says, I will not allow this onslaught of heaven to go on without a response. I will respond and defend my honor. I will speak on behalf of my righteousness. I will claim the earth for my glory, and my glory will be seen. So up till now, we haven't had a lot of good news in chapter 59. We've had a lot of renouncement of that, and, and all of this comes until we come to verse 19. And verse 19 begins to change. I mean, everything seems to change at that moment. Because when we read verse 19, it says, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun, for He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. But notice, they shall fear the name of the Lord. Well, you might say, well, those who will be destroyed will fear the name of the Lord. But who are they? That's the big question here at Isaiah. Who are they? They shall fear the name of the Lord. Well, first of all, notice that they are those who are from the west and from the place of the rising of the sun, which is in the east. So clearly what God has in mind here or what the prophet wants to tell us is that something that God does in Israel's history. And I would think that Isaiah is again referring to a coming event which is the destruction of Jerusalem, that this is exemplary of his dealings with the entire human race. And here's a little life lesson on how we should think about Israel and her place in history. You know, a great question that sometimes gets asked, or, you know, Israel, I mean, what, what are they? Are they God's chosen people? And you get other people saying, well, that's, you know, replacement theology. We have all this stuff going on today. Romans 3, verse 19, Paul says that they are a lesson book to the nations. That what God does to Israel, if you will, God takes Israel and puts them to the head of the class. And he says, sit right here, and I'm going to make you an example of my dealings with the whole earth. And as the whole earth sees your sins responded to. They will say, ha, that's how God deals with a nation that will not repent. So we should learn and fear the name of the Lord. I mean, see, there's a good news in all of this, especially if you're a Gentile at this juncture. God will do something in Israel that will make all of us turn our heads and say, we ought not to trifle with God. But then comes verse 20. A Redeemer will come to Zion. Now, I can't help but read that and think of Jesus riding that donkey on Palm Sunday into the city of Jerusalem, first of all, weeping over the city. But he has come not to conquer it in the way in which an ancient Roman warrior might conquer the city. He comes to lay down his life for the sins of his people. A redeemer will come. In the Old Testament background, a kinsman redeemer in the Levitical Law was an individual who looked at the debt that you had accumulated and acted on your behalf and paid the payment for you. So a redeemer is always one that will pay the penalty of your sinfulness. So if a redeemer will come to Zion in the middle of all of this horrible story of sin comes this marvelous verse, a redeemer will come to Zion. Someone will pay for all of these sins. Someone who will make this iniquity and this, this desolation, this abusing of the law courts. See, there's one text I actually didn't deal with, and that was all the way back at verse 5. And please go back to that again. They hatch adder's eggs. See, everything that's being done hatches death. 
And then also they weave spider's webs. So when they put on clothing, it's only spider's webs. It won't clothe them. It won't cover all the wickedness they have, says Isaiah. This is all true of what has happened. But I know this, a redeemer will come to Zion. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those in Jacob, watch this, who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. When I think about turning from transgression, of course it's a call to repentance and salvation. It's this hopeful call that says, come to the Lord our God, for he who has wounded us, as the book of Hosea said, will also heal us. It's a wonderful line. For he has wounded us, but he will heal us. And God allows us in this present hour to see the full weight of our sins so that we might come to him and plead for mercy and grace in our time of need. But I think there's a word for believers here as well. New Testament believers who walk with Jesus, who have allowed ourselves to take an undisciplined approach to our Christian lives, who have not humbled ourselves before the Lord, who have not renounced our sinfulness, who have allowed attitudes and actions who have allowed the very same values that make up our culture to be felt in our own lives. I worked for years with a, a man who in our church dealt with the marriage and family part of the ministry that we had. And so all of the couples would come to him that were going to get married uh, for original counseling. And he said, now far over 50% of people who claim faith in Christ are already living together before, before their marriage. It has become commonplace among believers to allow our sexual morality. Now, I'm not now talking about the, the world. I'm talking about in the church. To allow our viewing habits on television to be deeply, deeply influenced by the permissive culture in which we live. We've allowed also, as Dawn had already mentioned, the values of seeking pleasure as the ultimate good. And then we blame God if the pleasure we thought should have come from Him is not there. And we shake our fists at heaven and we say, God, why are you not hearing me and providing for me the kind of a lifestyle that I wish to have? And we have not come to realize that if we do not renounce our sins, we begin to prove that we are not the people of God after all. It is simply a mark of the redeemed that we walk in humility before Him, and when the call goes out for repentance, that we do so. A number of years ago, and that takes us all the way back to the 1970s, I won't ask those of you to stand who were alive then, but back in the 1970s in the city of Saskatoon, there were twin brothers, the Sutera twins, who had come to do their series of revival meetings in that city. And they would always do the same thing. I actually had a conversation with them. And uh, they would do the same thing wherever they would go. They would come to Christians and would announce to them their sins. And as they would do that, they would ask people to come forward and repent of their sins. It was just that. It was a very simple message. Come renounce your sin, repent of the Lord, receive mercy and grace in your time of need. That was all they had. But that one day, in a little Baptist church in Saskatoon, the first people that came forward were a man on this side of the altar and a man on that side of the altar, and they were brothers. And they had fallen out from one another, and they had not spoken to each other in over 20 years and wanted absolutely nothing to do with one another. They hadn't realized that the both of them had gone into that meeting together. And as they came into that meeting, they heard God speaking, it's time now to renounce their sins. And unbeknownst to the other, at the same time, the Spirit of God moved each of them. And they came to the altar on the opposite side, and they looked up and saw the brother. And then they walked towards one another. And they fell into each other's arms and started weeping and asking the other to forgive them and asking God to forgive them of their sins. And when that moment happened, Something changed. People started streaming forward, and they decided in Saskatoon that they needed to have bigger meetings because more people wanted to confess their sins. I'm actually, I actually read in the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, get this, that the income tax department in Canada had to open up a separate account from all the people from the Saskatoon revivals who were, who were writing the federal government saying, you know, in 1967... 
I didn't report my full income and I sinned and I'd like to make it right and I'm sending this in. The secular newspapers were recording the repentance of believers as they came before the throne of God's grace to find mercy and forgiveness in their time of need. And listen, brothers and sisters, we live in this country where we have watched in the last 60 years in this country fully 50% of this entire nation no longer goes to church in a period of 60 years. We've lost one half of the nation in a single generation. One half of the nation has been lost to the gospel and are raising their children without any knowledge of Christ whatsoever. Whatsoever. And I've got to ask a question. When will it be time for us who remain here to say, Lord, we have not watched over the kind of life that we live, we have not renounced our sin. Look, I'm not, again, arguing for legalism, for sinless perfection. I'm simply arguing that we keep short accounts before God and that we walk in humility before Him. I'm not arguing. You see, if you've said, well, I've been to confess a thousand times and I don't know that I should do a thousand one, God keeps, you know, he'll, be, he'll be tired of me. He is not. Come to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in your time of need. See, a, a redeemer will come to Zion. A redeemer will come. Christ will come, and the enormity of sins will be forgiven. To those who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And then comes this verse 21. It's a complicated one, but it's a wonderful way of ending this. And as for me, I think this is now Isaiah speaking. This is my covenant with them, uh, says the Lord. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. This is... This is God speaking. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forever. And the question is, who is God speaking to here? It's possible that God is speaking to the prophet himself. I'm going to continue to have you testify to this sinful generation. It's not going to depart on your mouth. And after you will rise up a series of prophets so that the word of God will be continually heard by God's people. That's one way to read this text. Another way to read this text is to say that God is promising the people themselves that he will place his spirit upon them and that there will be a time of national confession of sin and reconciliation with God. But as I read the text today, I see in it a great promise. My spirit that is upon you, the words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. See, that's one of the reasons I think it's so easy for believers to live in repentance and renewal constantly, isn't it? Isn't that why it's so easy? Because God has promised never to take his spirit from you. And the, the worst sin that you can repent of is still a sin that will find grace and mercy in your time of need. Join me in prayer. In fact, would you stand with me as we pray?